Our gospel lesson this morning comes from Mark 6, 14 through 29. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some were saying, John the baptizer has been raised from the dead, and for this reason, these powers are at work in him. But others said, no, it's Elijah. And others said, it is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For Herod himself had sent men who arrested John, bound him, and put him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because Herod had married her. For John had been telling Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to kill him. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and a holy man, and that he protected him. When he heard, he was greatly perplexed and yet liked to, to listen to him. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his courtiers and officers and for the leaders of Galilee. When his daughter Herodias came in and danced, she pleaded. The, his daughter of Herodias came in and danced. She pleased Herod and his guest, and the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I'll give it to you. And he solemnly swore to her, Whatever you ask, I will give you even half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, What should I ask for? And she replied, The head of John the baptizer. Immediately she rushed back to the king and requested, I want I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was deeply grieved, yet out of his regard for his oaths and for the guest, he did not want to refuse her. Immediately, the king sent a soldier of the guard with orders to bring John's head. He went, beheaded him in the prison, brought his head out on a platter and gave it to the girl. Then the girl gave it to her mother. When the disciples heard about it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I think Daryl does this on purpose to me. It's certainly a test. When he asked me a few weeks ago, knowing he was going to be gone, for good reason, he's at the walk to Emmaus. He's one of the spiritual leaders out there. He uh, said, what you do? I said, sure. Um, I after actually leave here, we head to the airport, but I said, I'll be able to make it, no problem. So I looked at, he says, send me, send me the scripture readings, and I opened that one up, and I went, no wonder he left. I mean, there couldn't be anything worse. And in fact, I went online sometimes to look up information, and every, every pastor who had ever written anything said, I hate this line, I don't want to preach on this, every, nobody likes to read about it. It's a tough lesson in the gospel. It's full of conflict. Deceit, death, faith, sort of, conspiracy, greed, guilt, and very, very violent resolution. We don't really care much for this story. However, the story has inspired numerous artists, including plays by Oscar Wilde, operas by Richard Strauss, paintings, multiple paintings by Caravaggio that we were looking, my wife and I were looking up this morning, and movies. It's a tough gospel story, not just because of the gruesome death of John the Baptist, the fact that he was beheaded without a trial and without due process of Roman law. 
as, as rough as the Romans were. They still had law set into place. I think it's more of a difficult story because it evokes in each one of us our own struggles. The, time, the struggles that we have to do every single day, maybe not about beheading people, but certainly struggles with our own faith, with our own knowledge of the truth, and with the conflicts just of everyday life. Now, as human beings, we're born with a lizard brain. That's what we like to call it in medicine and science. We have a lizard brain. Everybody knows a lizard, when it sees a cat or a dog coming at it, the lizard doesn't go, oh yeah, that's, that's Rover, he's, he's pretty kind, I'll be okay. No, a lizard turns around, takes off, hides. He doesn't think about it, he doesn't work it out, he runs away. That's a lizard brain, we all have it. It's a part of our anatomy and our biochemistry. And it's the part of us that reacts to the stress in the environment. Anytime there's a danger, our lizard brain comes up. And sometimes that stress doesn't actually have to be in the environment, it can just be in our own heads. But it's what makes us jump when we see a snake. We feel threatened. It's, what us, it's what's made us survive uh, either real dangers or imagined dangers. It's our mechanism for what we call fight or flight. But humans have developed over millions of years two mechanisms to help balance out that lizard brain we have. We have reason and we have a conscience. Reason is the power for us to think, to understand, to form judgments. It's our logic, it's our sanity. It helps us to find the answers to the questions we look for. Oftentimes we'll say, well, that stands to reason. Conscious, on the other hand, is a little inner voice that goes on in our head. It acts to guide us in determining rightness or wrongness of our behaviors. Conscious comes through journey. It comes for that search for the truth, for what we learn and what we recognize. It comes from basically outside of us. We can all recognize our weaknesses, our long list of justifications, our reasonings, and our fears that tend to pull us in one direction or the other in conflict. And it is when reason and conscience collide that we have conflict in our own minds. I'm reading a book right now about Robert Oppenheimer. Does anybody know who Robert Oppenheimer is? I see everybody, at least in my generation, nodding their heads, obviously. He was the father of the atomic bomb. Uh, with the abilities that he had to bring this to reality, and with the eventual ending of a, of a horrible six-year war, at, and with the likelihood that this was going to save millions of lives, he went ahead and produced this bomb. But he was a man who lived a very terrific moral con conflict the rest of his life. Reason would tell him that this was an okay thing to do for all the reasons I just said. But his conscience was something different. Now we can all sit here 75 years later and be armchair quarterbacks and, and hundreds of people have analyzed his, the actions that occurred in the Manhattan Project. But we didn't have to make that decision then, he did. But that's that in thing of reason and conscience finding each other. 
Now, Jean would be horribly disappointed. Where did Jean go? She's in the back. Jean would be horribly disappointed. So what movie did you pick? Everybody knows who's ever heard of my sermons. I use movies. Why? Because that's, a, that's my base of knowledge, I guess. You know, It's what I do, watch movies. And Jean said, what movie did you have? I wouldn't tell her. I wouldn't even tell her if I had a movie. Okay, we have a movie. What can we say? And when you go to look, now it's so easy to write sermons. Y'all don't recognize this. All you got to do is just type things into the computer and up they pop. So I was looking for movies with moral background or moral conflict. It was like 500 movies. Most of them I'd never even heard of, so we certainly weren't going to talk about them. But a recent movie that just had very critical acclaim, in fact, it was up for a multi-academy awards last year, it brings the idea of conflict and conscience together to the forefront. The movie was called Three Billboards Outside of Ebbing, Missouri. Odd title for a movie. It starred Woody Harrelson as the sheriff and Frances McDormand as this woman whose daughter had been murdered. The local authorities never were able to capture or get any clues to what happened to her daughter. So she saw three empty billboards outside the town. And so she rents the backboards and she puts up signs asking the sheriff, why haven't you found my daughter's killer? Now the sheriff is a bit sympathetic to her, just like Herod was a little sympathetic to John the Baptist. But he's also angry because of her confronting him out in front of everybody. He feels attacked. And how does he deal with that? Well, he's dying of pancreatic cancer. And it was kind of the conflict raged on. He, he harassed her. He harassed the people who sold her the billboards. And eventually, he just reaches his end, and he commits suicide. The moral conflicts don't end there in this movie, however. This woman becomes friends, sort of, with the deputy who's quite the racist. But together they follow a lead to a killer, somebody he overheard admitting to this murder, or admitting to a murder. Now, the DNA, DNA evidence comes back right at the end of the movie that this man isn't the killer. But this particular young woman, the sheriff and this woman are together in the car and they're getting ready to go find this person and do harm, take, take justice into their own hands at that time. This is the end moral conflict of this, conscience and, and what was going on. They, they wanted to settle their own personal conflicts in this, in this racism, anger, disease. How they chose to resolve those conflicts is really the heart of the story. The sheriff does it by ending his own life. The woman firebombs the police station. And then eventually, the deputy and the woman take law into their own hands and go, to, or go after this killer. Each has a moral dilemma. Each struggles with their own demons, their own angers, their own fears, and their own actions. But the nice thing in this, the director and the writer don't tell you what they did. They leave it. They leave you open-ended. You don't know you, the, the audience, is going to try to figure out what would you do at that moment? Would you go and find this person who you knew did commit a murder and admitted to something, but it wasn't the one you were looking for? So that's where this moral conflict ends. Now, in the Gospel of Mark, he doesn't do that. Mark doesn't leave us an open-ended book and figure out what the heck, what did Herod do? He had all this conflict. What did he do? 
Did he behead him or not? He don't, we don't have to worry about that. He tells us what happens. He, the conflict is, uh, uh, comes to an end and the actions are delivered to us right out there. This passage from Mark records the event in the, in the death of John the Baptist. Now John the Baptist was a forerunner of the Messiah. He was his cousin. He was a fulfillment of many, many Old Testament prophecies. He was the last of the Old Testament prophets. He was the last martyr of the Old Testament, and he's the first martyr of the New Testament. Even Jesus said about him, he is the greatest of them born of a woman. Herod, on the other hand, he was a pretty conflicted individual, minimally conflicted. Okay, how many of you know how many Herods there are in the Bible? Anybody tell me all the different Herods? I think it's sort of a confusing thing. This Herod is called Herod Antipas. Now he's the son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the Herod that was there when Jesus was born. He's the one that put the innocents to death. Herod Antipas had two brothers. They were actually two stepbrothers, uh, Aristopolis and Herod Philip. Now Aristopolis gets killed by his own father, Herod the Great. Herod Antipas marries the daughter of Eretus I, an Arabian king. Herod Philip marries Herodias, who was the daughter of his half-brother, Aristopolis. They had a daughter, Salome, so she becomes Herod Antipas' stepdaughter and half-niece. Herod Philip is disowned by Herod the Great, and he's moved to Rome. Herod Antipas and his wife go to visit Rome. Herod Antipas falls in love with Herodias, who is his half-niece and sister-in-law. They have an affair, they divorce their spouses and move back to Galilee. Are you confused? <laughs> a lot of Herods back in those days, right? It's not always the same. So you can see the setup, though. Herod Antipas marries his half-niece and sister-in-law. That right there would be somewhat of a difficult thing to live with. And he's the tetrarch of Galilee and Perea. Now, a tetrarch was somebody who had four areas or four regions that he took care of. He was not a king, as we often refer to King Herod. He was not a king as far as Rome was concerned. He was a tetrarch. And he only served at the pleasure of Rome. In this case, was Tiberius. So he had to work to keep the peace. So he's in between his own people and trying to please them and do the things they needed done. And he has to make sure that he doesn't have any uprisings or things that happen. He tries to keep the peace as much as he possibly can or he'll lose his job. Well, eventually he does in about 39 AD, he loses his job too and is sent off to some island someplace. He's already angered the Arabian king because he divorced his daughter and they end up with a little skirmish on the, on the border there as that was going on. Now he has an overbearing wife who would like to see John dead. John's already pointed out to him that what he's doing was unlawful for marrying his brother's wife before his brother had passed away. Now this angered his wife, Herodias, and she wanted him dead. And add to that, a stepdaughter and a half-niece, Salome. Adding another twist to this story. Herod, on the other hand, actually feared John. He knew he was a holy man, and he wanted to protect him which is why he put him in jail. That was really to protect him from everybody else. So Herod's caught up in this web of a complex 
personal, professional, and social relationships. He was set in a place of conflict somewhere between his reason and his conscience. He wants to please his wife, but he'll be forced to kill a holy man to do so. He wants to be generous to the Galilean society that he looks over. But he also must seem powerful to Rome and that he's in control of things. He wants to keep a promise to a stepdaughter, but he knows that conflicts with him about his knowledge and his feelings about John. He wants to please so many people, so many groups, and in the same way keep his own integrity. Kind of reminds us of a lot of the conflicts we do and the juggling we do. So where do we look for meaning in this violent account of the end of John the Baptist? Do we look at Herod's issue as sticking to his promises regardless of the cost? That sort of sounded reasonable probably in Herod's mind. Is it a good trait or was he just totally spineless? What about the unquenchable wrath of Herodias who wanted to see John dead because of what he said about the marriage? Fear drives that. And what about the exploitation of a teenage teenager as a sex symbol? And there, there's no reason or no conscience involved in that issue. This is the only reference we have in the Bible to Herodias and to her daughter Salome. While Herodias was a strong and opinionated voice, obviously, it, it was a very male-dominated society. And it's kind of unusual, you would think, that Herod would even have had paid attention to what she said that his own beliefs about John would have been powerful enough to him to say, shut up, sit down, you know, we're not paying attention to that. But he didn't do it. At first, Herod stands fast. He doesn't want to kill John. He has him in prison. But then Herodias comes up with plan B. She'll have her daughter dance for Herod. She must know her husband pretty well and know what his thoughts are and where he's going she probably knew a little bit about his lizard brain and what was going to get him going. So now we've added manipulation and conspiracy and incest to the boiling pot of deceit. Herodias would go to any length to kill John the Baptist. And her plan works. Herod concedes to kill John, and he's overtaken by his own vices and his own lizard brain. This is a most uncharacteristic story in the gospel. No matter how hard we listen, how hard we read this, really doesn't seem to be a lot of joy in it at all. There doesn't seem to be any uh, socially redeeming value to this part of Mark. And it's a wretched tale of anger and resentment and death. The story really lines up, though, between the two, John and Herod. John was a man of conviction. He was called by God, to prepare a way. He was called for repentance. He was a man of truth and a man of conscience. And he lived that every single day. While Herod is a conflicted man, seeking his own power, his own glory. And while we said, he's still trying to keep peace in Galilee. John the Baptist is a profile in courage. He speaks the truth, which we know can be quite dangerous at times. John confronted Herod over his adulterous marriage to his brother's wife. 
John angered Herodias, and she's determined to have him killed. John, Herod puts John in jail. Good move. Despite John's rebuke, Herod still feared and, uh, feared and respected the prophet and considered him very godly. But then, next step, his serious error in judgment was to promise Salome anything she wanted. And it wasn't just back in their house saying, hey, you know, well, that dance was great, I'll give you, what do you want? It wasn't that kind of promise. It was a promise in front of all his friends, his, his army people, his cohorts. So he had to save face. So once again, a figure of power crushed the truth, justice, and compassion in one horrible directive to satisfy the whims of a teenager. Although Jesus is just barely mentioned as a rumor in this, he's really not mentioned through the story much at all, John's death is a foreshadowing of Jesus' death. The author wants us to know that what speaking the truth is what's going to happen to you. And it's a foreshadowing of Jesus speaking the truth the same way. He was persecuted, eventually, and crucified for speaking the truth. And isn't it always, even today, that when somebody speaks the truth, you hear the cry of blasphemy, which is what happened then with the priests and Pharisees. The, go the gospel's telling us that it really isn't easy to follow Jesus. Resistance can be expected. We still live in a world where those entrusted with power live in fear that their authority will be challenged. Today, we can see all levels of, of that in all levels of authority. Sometimes we can become spineless, committed to expediency, getting things done, and willing to compromise our truth and justice and compassion if it will win us favors or votes or make us keep our job or be popular. We're all faced every day with decisions, some small and some larger. You know, things like, the clerk gave me $5 too much. Do I take it back in? Or, well, they're a big company, I'll just take it with me. Reason or consciousness? Do we gossip, talk about others just to make ourselves feel better or to give our egos a boost, saying, well, it's okay, everybody else does it? Do we post things online or tweet messages that prompt hatred and bigotry? rather than searching for compassion and truth. Why? Because everybody does it. And it's reasonable, and I'm speaking the truth. Are we so overcritical of those who make errors and mistakes? Are we ready to throw the first stone? Do we justify our own actions each day, or do we follow the inner voice, our conscience? Not to be confused with consciousness, which I hope you still are conscious at this moment in time after this. Do we follow the example of John Wesley? And I think this was my favorite thing about John. I think it's the thing we should always remember about him. The story was John Wesley would never go to bed at night unless he had performed four things every day. Acts of prayer, acts of meditation, acts of charity, and acts of justice. And the stories were that, excuse me, a little dry. Stories were that he would walk around the streets of London in the 1750s looking for somebody to to help or to give compassion to uh, or justice to. 
Seems like in 1750 there would have been a lot of people laying around on the streets in London at the time. Do we answer that same call, as John Wesley would say? Darrell spoke about it last week. I'm glad he gave that line, kind of helped me. He says, do we go out and find those clothes that he was, or that food for those people that he was talking about? Well, the answer isn't in our reason, and it really isn't even in our conscience. The reason is in the power, the, 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 the answer is in the power of grace. In the, in the end of the passage, it, it was an opportunity for Herod to make a decision. He had a chance to choose grace, although he didn't know what grace was. He could have stood up for the decision that, that, that he knew was right. He may have disappointed his loved ones, but he didn't do that. He did not allow grace into his life, grace into his conscience to make the right decision. We can choose grace or we can reject it. It's grace that guides our conscience. It isn't what we read, it isn't what we hear on TV, it isn't, it isn't reading the Bible without that spirit coming to us and letting us know that that is really the way our conscience should feel. It moves us in that direction and it's only grace that empowers our conscience. We at times have all caved into fears. It's what happens, we're human. Jesus understood that. And that's a great part of the gospel. Jesus understood that we had lizard brains, that we would react to things, that we got angry. You know, Peter got angry all the time. He cut off an ear. He was always, you know, they were always worried about things. Jesus was the calm one because he was acting purely on grace. But Jesus understands that. You know, we all have these fears. We act on the fear of what might happen to us. Our fears of rejection, the fear of failure, the fear of people finding out who we really are, the fear of loss, the fear of death. We make decisions based not on love and grace, but on the fears that are manufactured in our heads and our minds. Fear that seems reasonable. I'm looking over here to the, my left to see what smile I get about the, my argument of my fears and worries at three o'clock in the morning. And why were you up being awake? I'm sorry, I'm being personal there, but. That's not reasonable, I'm told. And so I added that for you. Alone, we'll always be directed by fear. By ourselves, we, we will be guided by fear. Our conscience will be driven by unreasonable direction. Jesus preached fear about fear and about grace. It was the mainstay of his ministry. Do not worry, as he would say. Herod had every fear. He didn't listen to his heart. He didn't listen to grace. Are we going to let grace be the power that makes us make the right decisions, that brings our conscience into full, full union with God? I think that's the answer we go home with today. I got one more minute. What else could I say? <laughs> All right. Let's bow our heads. Lord, thank you for this morning, for this opportunity that we had to come and gather, to have wonderful music, to, to have fellowship here together, to leave our conflicts and our fears at the door, to come in and open our hearts, to take this message from Mark home with us and recognize that this still fits us in our everyday life. We ask you to go with us today to, to open up our hearts, to let our fears go by. We say all this in Christ's name.
Amen.